0: Well welcome. Glad that you could join us this morning to worship with us and to spend time celebrating communion and to listen to the word and worship together. It is great to be together as a family of believers uh, to worship our Lord and Savior. Uh, those of you who are online, thank you for joining us. Uh, glad you could be with us as well today. We are on our third week of the Sermon on the Mount series. So if you remember, week one, Pastor Trinity talked about the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are simply this. They are ways we are to be as kingdom people, that there is a certain type of person that God calls to himself and blessed are those numerous individuals. It's really one person that you are as you have that relationship with Jesus Christ. And last week we talked about salt and light and specifically how salt has a lot of functions, but it acts as a preservative. And so when we are in the world, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have an opportunity to preserve the world and to introduce the world to Christ through the light of our life. Because we are like a city on a hill, a lamp that's not been put out, so when people see us, they can really see Jesus. And today, we're going to look at Jesus's words concerning the law and the kingdom. Um, a little bit of a, a side note and just an acknowledgement, I. I was put on the preaching schedule for this Sunday. Normally, I get a chance to kind of cherry-pick what kind of passages I want to preach on and speak to, and so I always pick pick my best ones because they're the easiest to speak on. Um, And so when I got put right into the middle of this series, I'm like, okay, what passages I'm speaking on? And right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and this was a challenging one. This is one that I spent a lot of time studying for more than I normally do because of the complexity of the passage, but I am convinced that God has something in here for us today to really unwrap and unpack what it looks like to follow Christ. And this sermon especially will give you some understanding as we go into the rest of our series. It really will help bring some insight to what we're going to look at. So I will go verse by verse, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5. But before we begin, would you pray with me and for me as we start this time? God, humbly, I come before you, and I just recognize that your word is only understood by you, that any insight we have as people has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, may it be your words, not mine, that are communicated this morning. May I do justice to how you want us to understand this text, and may your Holy Spirit bring us eyes to see what it is that you would have us see and the courage to live it out as you would have us live. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can open up to Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to camp out here, uh, starting at verse 17, uh, for the entire sermon. We're going to look at this verse by verse, because there's some really interesting stuff that's going on. But aside from the words that Jesus said, I want to point something out, something that's happening here. You see, Jesus is giving a sermon on the mount. Why is that significant? because approximately 1,500 years before this sermon, God came down on Mount Sinai in in a form of a cloud and spoke from his mouth to his people 1,500 years prior. The people were so terrified that this happened. It's in Exodus uh, chapter 19 and 20, if you want to go look it up. They were so terrified that this happened. They said, we never want to hear from God again directly. We want somebody to go to God and then come tell us what God said. We all know how that worked out because while Moses was doing that they built a golden calf and started worshipping the golden calf. It didn't work out so great for them. Well, for the next 1100 years God sent prophets to the people to communicate his words to them. And so these prophets would go amongst the people and say, "Here's what God says." Sometimes it was good news, sometimes not so much. But the people had to listen to God through the prophet, not God himself. And then there was 400 years before Jesus came. During that time, nothing was said from God. It was quiet. You could hear a pin drop, that there were no prophets proclaiming God's word, a new word that was coming to the people. There was was nothing that God had said to them. And then we get to this moment where on a mount, God himself, as Jesus Christ, is speaking to his people directly once again. And that's the, the format, and that's the context for the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look at Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commandments and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be, given, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to point something out about Bible study. Uh, this is something that I learned a while back that's always helped me to understand things. And, and you'll get this because you do this all the time in the English language. You just don't really apply it to Scripture. Typically, it's not our habit. Um, starting with this, so when, when, my, when my kids were, were young, we had in our front yard, like the one-way dead-end street, and all of a sudden, this massive bus rolls into our neighborhood. And this bus was like parked directly in front of our house. And while this bus was parked there, my kids came right up to the window. And they were just like, what is that? And being, you know, very blunt and straight to the point, Dad, I, I looked at the bus and I read the words on the side, party bus. <laughs> and my kids were like, their eyes got really big, party? My wife, as the kids were growing up, they threw, she threw all these parties, birthday parties for them. I mean, she did a lot, elaborate Uh, decorations and fun games. And so when my kids saw the word party, they thought, amazing birthday party. (laughs) When you read the Bible, the first word or first meaning that comes into your mind when you see a word isn't always what that word means, because there's a range of meaning, right? So my kids saw the bus and they thought birthday party, (laughs) where we know party can mean other things. Uh, it, it could mean anything from, you know, when I was in high school, there was like the athletic crowd, and then there was the, uh, the, the really smart crowd, and then there were the party people, right? So it could be a group of people. Um, it could be a birthday celebration, like I explained before. It could also be when you show up to a restaurant, the group that you're with, Pastor Dave, party of four, and all kinds of range of meanings, And so my kids thought birthday party when I knew this was not that kind of party because I knew that somebody was getting married down the street and this was a bachelor party and was not going to be what they thought that it was going to be. So I did not let them run out of the house to go join the party. (laughs) Understandably so. So when Jesus says the words law or the prophets, what does he mean? What does he mean by that? Well, very bluntly, here's what he means. The law is the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And the prophets are the 34 remaining books before we get to the New Testament. So the law and the prophets, Jesus is speaking about the Old Testament. He's about to give understanding to the Old Testament. Uh, People often ask me as a pastor, well, what's the best commentary on the New Testament? Because it can be complex at times. You read through Leviticus and you'll be like, the sacrifice of this and this law and that thing. And it's just like overwhelming. The best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And not only that, but we have Jesus who's going to give us insight into the text itself. And when God tells us how to understand the Bible, we better pay attention because he's right. (laughs) And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's going to tell us what the law and the prophets and how he came to fulfill them and what that means. So verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is making a very distinct statement of purpose here. He is making a statement that he came, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Um, this sermon could have been an entire summer's worth of sermon material. Why? Well, because Jesus is reflecting on the entirety of the Old Testament. So, as you can imagine, as I'm sitting in my office working on the sermon, I'm chasing out all kinds of bunny trails and, and how Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. I'm just going to give you three. The first way that he did it was the moral law, there were hundreds of laws that were established uh, in and among the Jewish people because of their need to be holy and be like God's people. So there were, there were 613 to be exact. And of these moral laws, Jesus did all of them. He didn't fail at a single one. So even before this happens, he's in the desert, right? And while he's in the desert, he's tempted, Matthew chapter 4. And he's being tempted and Satan's saying, we'll do these things. And and Jesus is quoting scripture and, and really fending off the attacks of Satan who was right in front of him in this moment. And he did not give in to temptation. Unlike Israel who wandered the desert and did give in to temptation. There's a powerful message being stated here, Right? Israel wandered the desert, then went to Mount Sinai, and they got the Ten Commandments. Jesus went in the desert. He was tempted. He did not sin. He came, and now he is giving a clarification on the Ten Commandments. It's beautiful signaling that's going on here in the text that God is giving to his people. And, and all of these people sitting in the, uh, below the mount listening to Jesus would have understood, because this was close to their time. They knew the stories. They knew the Old Testament, and they knew what was going on. But Jesus came to fulfill the laws. He also came to fulfill the sacrificial system. Uh, In the Levitical priesthood, there were sacrifices that needed to be made for the people, for on behalf of their sin, on behalf of the priest's sin. And so once a year, there were certain animals that were slain in certain ways, and things were done in a specific manner. All of those things, Jesus met the full requirements of a sacrifice with his life. He also was ordained by God. In the roles that Israel had experienced over the years. So Israel needed a prophet. I told you about that earlier. The prophet was the one who communicated from God to the people. Jesus filled that role. Israel needed a priest, right, to sacrifice on behalf of the people's sin so that they could be atoned for and be holy before God. Jesus fulfills the role of a priest. And of kingship, he was of the line of David. So when Jesus said, yes, I fulfill, I'm going to fulfill every single thing in the Old Testament. He is not kidding. It is right down to every law, to every sacrifice. Jesus sums it all up. And it's happening right here entirely and completely. Jesus is the fulfillment. Um, My wife and I love to do puzzles. And how many times we get to the very end and there's that one piece missing, right? That, that a pet drug it off or it's in a crack in the couch or, or somebody bumped and it went someplace else. Or, and I've always, you can never see the clear picture until you get that final piece. And Jesus is the final piece to the puzzle for all people to see. He didn't dismiss the Old Testament as if it was weird, outdated, or didn't happen. He came to fulfill it. The Old Testament matters, and the next verse actually confirms it. Spoiler alert, all of it matters, not just some, all of it matters. So here's what he says in verse 18 For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Um, Jesus is using a little bit of hyperbole here by saying, not until heaven and earth disappear. Um, Hyperbole is an exaggeration to make a point, not meant to be taken literally. Why? Because you look at Revelation 21, heaven and earth aren't going to disappear. They're going to be made new when he comes back, right? There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. So he's saying that these things will be around forever. Why? Because they reflect the very character of God. Even though they're represented differently after Christ before him, all of the sacrifices that were necessary for the people to be holy before God give us indication, give us theology, the study of God. They give us an indication of the nature and person of who he is. So all of the Old Testament speaks down. What is the smallest letter? Well, the smallest letter here in Hebrew, which would be referred to as the yod, which would be like our apostrophe. It'd be like our apostrophe. So the smallest letter would be like an apostrophe that they would see. The least stroke, well, what would the least stroke be? It would be like the dot on the top of a lowercase i. All of the strokes, all of the dots, all the, every way a sentence is formed in the Old Testament, all of it matters. Not a single stroke of the pen written down in the Old Testament is going to pass away until it's all accomplished by Christ. Um. I'm a lazy parent at times, I'll confess, and sometimes my kids, uh, you know, when they get a little downtime at the end of the day, they'll be on their electronic babysitters, otherwise known as their iPads, and uh, it'll be supper time. And so I, instead of call for them, because they never do, because they're in their screen, I will text them. Uh, I send out a group text to all my kids. The difference between them coming to supper and running away from my house is a comma. (laughs) Time to eat kids versus time to eat, comma, kids. (laughs) In the Bible, the least stroke matters. It does in the English language. When you read the Old Testament, it is a thing of beauty. Jesus points and says that all scripture has value. All of it does. And I know as a pastor, I've read, I've studied, I have a leg up on this because I can be in the text a lot. It's confusing sometimes. But I promise you, all of it has value and it points to something of Christ. Um, I am by no stretch a math whiz. In fact, math was not my favorite subject in high school. I hated it. Um, and some of you in this room are really good at math, and I, and I love you, and, and I hope you do well at that. It's just not my thing. I like words, I like preaching, I like pastor stuff, but, but math is not one of my gifts at all. In high school, I took an AP math class. Why did I do that? Because they said I get college credit for it, and then I didn't have to pay those college credits later. And then I realized that AP is harder than normal math. Um, it, it, the first day in class, right, the teacher says to the class, he says, if you open up to the back of your book, all of the answers are in there, and you can absolutely use any of the answers from the back of the book you want. And my heart was like, sweet, like I'm super excited. Like I can go in the back of the math book, and I got all the answers back there. I was really pumped up about this. Then he said, you can use the answers, but you must show your work. (laughs) And my heart just sank at that point because I knew that I'd actually have to figure this out to get through this class. But you see, the Old Testament is the work of God and Jesus is the answer. My teacher wasn't interested in me just having the right answer. He wanted me to have the right understanding. And if you know the work, you know the understanding of the answer. And that is how the Old Testament fits into our lives as disciples. No, we don't still sacrifice animals once a year. We don't go to a temple. We are the temple filled with the Holy Spirit. Some things have changed, but the entirety of the Old Testament is a beautiful work of God that gives a testament to his character and person. And by reading it, we learn something about him. It just deepens our understanding of God. We have to be in it, and we have to know it, because that's part of understanding who Jesus is. Verse 19 says this, "...therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands, and teaches others accordingly, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." So you remember, number one, Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the, the whole Old Testament. And, and number two, all of Scripture has value, not just the New Testament, but the Old really does have significant value because it gives us that understanding and insight into the text and to where Jesus is. All Scripture is also to be obeyed and taught. All Scripture is to be obeyed and taught. To say that some portion of the Bible is no big deal, is a big deal because Jesus makes it one right here, right now. He says that all of these things are to be obeyed and to be taught, that we ought to live in them and understand them and go through them. And I could go on and on about how the the priesthood is changed under Christ and Levitical laws don't apply to us anymore. We still learn things from that. And there's a lot of different nuances to the text. But the truth is that we learn something simply by knowing who God is in the Old Testament. Um, 177 years ago, this May, Samuel Morris came up with a system of communication that went from point A to point B, miles and miles apart, really quickly, <laughs> instantaneously. So one person on one end could tap on their device it go through a wire, they'd hear it on the other end. And it was 177 years ago that the first communication was sent between Baltimore and Washington, DC. And uh, fun fact, the communication that was sent was actually a Bible verse from the book of Numbers. I think Samuel Morris and I would have gone along real well. He understood the value of the Old Testament. But the beautiful thing was, by com- creating a new way to do communication, he didn't throw communication out. He still, people still got together. They still connected with each other. They still spent time with each other and and, and had conversation, but now they had a whole new way of looking at communication. They could see that communication was now possible over a great distance instantaneously. And you see, Jesus' arrival, when he came on the scene, what he was doing was not throwing away all the work that God had done up until this point. He was completing it and then changing the way we look at things. No longer do we worship at a temple. We worship together because where we are is where God's presence is. And even during COVID, you think of like the church and how we can now do things online that we previously have not been able to. I had a comment this week of someone who was traveling out of town and and they wanted to be here, but they couldn't, but they could still join. You see, communication changed things. And Jesus, when he showed up, changed the way we looked at it. It didn't go away. Let's look at verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus changes the way we see things through the Bible, through our eyes, through through the world's eyes. And now what he's saying is you have to beat the religious leaders at their game in order to go to heaven. <laughs> or at least that's what it appears to say but not necessarily. This is not a very straightforward passage until you really begin to think about it. What were the religious leaders like? Well, they were like this. They knew all the laws extensively, and they made other laws on top of the laws they knew. And then they kept them outwardly and did a whole bunch of things in front of the people in a very proud and boastful way. They were the religious elite. They did things on the outside really, really well. The problem was Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. Because on the outside, they looked great, but on the inside, they were dead. Because their hearts were not connected to God. And over and over and over in Scripture, we see this, that Jesus condemns the Pharisees constantly because while their lips say things about how great God is and, and how we should follow him and what we should do, their hearts were far from him. And we see this tension going on over and over and over in Scripture. So what does it mean to have righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law? It means not to have external righteousness. It means to have a right heart. See the difference there? If you want to go further than those who know religion the best, then start with the heart. That's what Jesus is saying. You see, it's it's great to have sacraments to celebrate like communion as Jesus said, do this. And that we worship together and that we, we dress up to come to church and we have traditions and prayer and Bible reading. And those are all great things. But if that's our only expression of our faith is an external tradition, then we're no better than the Pharisees. And Jesus calls us to have a right heart, that he wants us to be right on the inside. That's why the Sermon on the Mount starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Being poor in spirit means being humble before God, recognizing who he is. And it's when our heart is in that position that our righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, because the Pharisees never went heart deep. They only stayed on the surface. In Scripture, in a few places, and I, I, could, I could spend all day talking about the different places in Scripture, if you go do a word study on where God uses the heart language in Scripture, it's all over. In Psalm 51, when David had, was writing basically repentance because of his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Bathsheba's husband, um, he was writing this repentant letter, and he said in Psalm 51 that, God, you don't desire sacrifice more than you desire a broken spirit in a contrite heart. And then you get into 2 Kings and the people were under judgment and things were not going well. And they broke themselves before God and they humbled and cried out to him and threw dust on their heads and ripped their clothing and said, God, we need you. Our hearts are broken. We were wrong. And God said, I will heal you. And you know why he said he would heal them? Because of their heart. And then you get into the book of Joel, the minor prophets. And this is where the people were not walking with God. They had been exiled. And, And in Joel, the people were doing the right actions on the outside to try to get God to heal them and restore them. And God said, I won't do that for you. You're doing all the right things, but you're not having the right heart. God wants us to have a right heart. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and with your mouth that you profess and you are saved. I'll tell you what's not said here. It's not with our church attendance we're justified. It's not with our, the length of time we're a Christian that we're justified or how much we pray or how many times you've read the Bible or how well you understand the Bible. Those things don't justify us. What justifies us is our heart. And that is how we take our faith to the next level. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Right living begins with a right heart. Right living begins with the right heart. And and I want to set you up for this. The next several weeks, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to take the words from the Ten Commandments and raise the bar almost to an unreachable level. You're like, how do I do that? And Pastor Trinity and some of our other pastors will explain these passages, but I want you to go in and not discourage that I can't do this. I want you to go into the text when it's preached from up front here, and I want you to look at it, And understand that it's with a heart filled with the presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit that you and I can live rightly. Because outside of a relationship with Him, there's no way we can do that. That we need Him in our life in order to do what He has called us to do. The words of Christ are not unattainable because in Christ we can live with a right heart and right action. And that is good news. Do bow with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for every opportunity that you give us to have a humble heart. And Lord, there are so many times in, in my life and in the lives of other people where, God, we have, we've sinned and we've messed up. And uh, Lord, you don't need more attendance from us at church or more Bible reading. God, you want our hearts Lord, while all those things are good, may you capture our hearts and let our behavior follow from that. Lord, we trust that when your word says we're justified if we believe in our hearts, that we would stand on that truth and the promises of God. May you convict us with your Holy Spirit and lead us into salvation through the discipleship of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.